one point in my past, I decided it would be really helpful to have like multiple email addresses. It just caused me nothing but intense pain. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 63 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel we have Alondo Brewington. Hello from North Carolina. James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. Pete Hodgson. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv and this week we're going to be talking about our computer and office setups, you know, the tools we use, things like that. And we might get into some workflow stuff because I know that a lot of that kind of overlaps. So I'm kind of curious. I'm I'm pretty sure we all do our development for iOS on Macs, since that's kind of the canonical way. <laughs> I'm curious, though, what models do you guys have? What do you use there? Well, I have the MacBook Pro Retina that came out in 2012, the first one. And that's been a pretty good machine for me, although I'm itching to upgrade now. Yeah, it's old now, right? Exactly. I, I was in such a rush to get it when it was announced. I went and just picked one up off the shelf uh, that had eight gig, not wanting to wait to order the 16 gig machine. And now I wish I had 16 gig. That's funny. What about you, Jane? So I'm using a MacBook Pro. I bought it in the last year, gave myself a bonus. So yeah, Retina, all that. Definitely like having a laptop because I, mean, I go to client sites quite a bit or I work out of a place in downtown so I can just take my box wherever I'm going. Mm-hmm. But if I'm working at home, I, I do have a you know pretty large monitor. I got the Thunderbolt monitor set up. So it works out pretty well. I, know, I don't actually use my laptop as a laptop very often, but it's nice to have. Nice. What about you, Pete? I think I'm going to sound like John Syracuse here. You know John Syracuse has that thing where he doesn't have an iPhone, he has an iPod Touch? Have you guys ever heard about that? Anyway, so my main computer is an 11-inch MacBook Air <laughs> from like from from several years ago. I don't use it for iOS development. I use it for like other development, like Ruby and that kind of stuff. But I also have like a MacBook something something, kind of relatively new, big MacBook Pro. Honestly, I don't use it as much as my MacBook Air because I travel around quite a lot and I really like having a tiny little computer. So I've developed lots of really weird habits for working with, a, I guess, what's relatively a tiny screen. But yeah, Very it's nice. pretty common to have a MacBook Air as a dev machine. I mean, if most of the apps we're working on are not that large, right? so you can compile it just fine. Yeah, it's the real estate that kills you on something like Xcode. Like if I'm using Vim or the terminal or just a browser, then it's perfectly fine. But with Xcode, you've, I find myself always kind of popping open and close all of the, the 500 little side side things. That's the that's the thing that annoyed me. When the it was fine until like the assistant thing, you know, the the split screen thing came out, and then it because that's so helpful, it became really annoying to have an 11 inch screen. <laughs> Yeah, I have a 13-inch MacBook Pro. It's the 2013 model, so it's the latest model. And I actually bought it refurbished from Apple, I think. I don't remember for sure if I got it from Apple or somewhere else. But yeah, it's it's been pretty nice. To be honest, though, I switched between that and my 2000... What is it? A 2009 or 2010? I have a Mac Pro sitting on my desk. And uh, I've used that for a long time to do mostly Ruby development. And it's worked fine for that, and that's what most of my development is these days. But I haven't had any problems running Xcode or anything else on it. 
though I have been tempted, I have to say, to move all of my development stuff over to my MacBook Pro because it, it has a little bit nicer processor and you know, about the same amount of RAM. And then I can take it wherever I want to go. I found that for some of the projects that I work on, I have to do some setup on my laptop before I can actually work on them. And so if I was just always working on the laptop, then I could just pick it up and go with it. So yeah, I'm kind of toying with the idea. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, some of you guys mentioned that you use your laptop as more than a laptop sometimes, you know, where you plug monitors and stuff into it. Do you find that that works pretty well? I actually find that it depends on the type of work that I'm doing. It can be a hindrance in some instances where the extra screen can be a distraction. So I have a 23-inch monitor that I connect. It's not a Thunderbolt or anything. And I do that mostly when I'm trying to do work with design. And I can have the larger monitor with the mock-ups that I've gotten from design and doing those. But when I'm seriously coding and I have to do some debugging, I heads down. I tend to disconnect and just use the laptop alone. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it used to be really annoying to have multiple screens, and then not Mavericks, but the one before Mavericks. Wait, no, maybe it was Mavericks where they fixed that. I think yeah. Mavericks was where they made the multi-monitor like support not suck for doing, you know, like multiple things uh, full screen. Yeah. I, I think when originally when I tried to do that, I generally don't bother plugging into an external monitor, but when I tried that before, it annoyed me so much that I just switched it to mirroring mode and just. Just, I don't know. Something about the way I work. It doesn't work if the multi-monitor uh, support is crappy. Yeah, definitely the full screen support was definitely lacking on previous versions. Yeah, definitely. It was nice when they made it so that you could go full screen on both screens. Yeah, I'm kind of curious there because, you know, as I said before, I have two monitors. They're up on uh, these Ergotron monitor arms. I'll put a link to those in the show notes. Anyway, it'd be nice to just set my laptop down and plug stuff into it and just, you know, run with things. And then, like I said, be able to, you know, because sometimes I just have to get out of the house. I get a little stir crazy because I work from home, you know, where the kids are being loud and I'm just like, I just need a break. You know, it'd be nice to be able to just unplug and then run out. But I haven't actually tried that yet. Works out pretty well. I mean, obviously, like your windows are going to be the wrong size and stuff. But I don't know. I've seen people do that pretty successfully. I think it wouldn't work if you had a configuration of monitors, which was quite popular at my current client is uh, what was dubbed the TIE Fighter. It was like a big, like 27 inch or 30 inch display. And then like two displays either side, but like sideways, like rotated to uh, portrait mode. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing that and you've got everything, what people tend to do is kind of arrange it so that there's, you know, like all of the terminal output in one side and uh, maybe a browser on the left hand side and then the IDE in the middle. If you've kind of like lovingly arranged all of your windows in just the right spot and then you unplug it, then it's probably going to drive you a little bit crazy. Maybe. I don't know. There's also, there's like, like all those window managers that you can use, right? Where you kind of like use some gestures or some key combinations to say, you know, uh, take up the right hand side of the screen or take up full screen or take up just the bottom third of the screen, that, that kind of stuff, which is useful if you're the kind of OCD person that likes their windows in just the right spot. Yeah, I'm one of those people. I actually use Hi- HyperDoc. Do any of you guys use something like that? I okay. don't it does a few other things. HyperDoc, it allows you to drag, you know, to the top, right, left, or bottom, and it'll, you know, it'll just take up half the screen or a quarter of the screen. But the other thing that it does that I really like is I can mouse over the icons in my dock, and it'll actually give me a window preview. Like, if I have multiple Chrome windows open, it'll show me both of them, and I can just click on the one that I want. And so there, there are a few nice things that I like that I get out of that. Are there programs on your Macs that you just can't live without? So one thing that I use, which um, I'm surprised not more people use, is uh, open source tool called GitX, 
GitX is this open source thing that's just like a visual Git graphical UI for, for Git basically. So it shows all of the all of the commits and you can kind of mouse around and you can you can actually it's been forked into multiple different projects and some of the more fancy pants forks allow you to do like most of the stuff that you would do from the command line actually in the GUI. So you can like create a new branch and rebase onto another branch and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't tend to use the really fancy forks, but I just use it for kind of browsing through my check-in before I check in. So I find it a lot nicer to be able to, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit OCD about kind of crafting Git commits. And so I'll want to go through a file and say, oh, well, this is part of this commit and this is part of some other commit. So I'll go through and kind of drag in the, the files I want, and then you can go into an, an individual file and kind of stage uh, hunks of that file in and leave other hunks behind, that kind of stuff. It's super useful if you use Git a lot. And I, I'm not, I love Git, but I think it has a horrible UI from, a, you know, the command line UI is a pretty high barrier to entry sometimes. It definitely takes a while to learn it. I mean, I do most of my Git work from the command line, but it definitely helps to visualize some things, especially if yeah. you're dealing with a bunch of different branches, and here's five commits on this branch, what's the difference? And I yeah. always forget, oh, wait, how do I tell just the, the commits, or how do I tell this part of it, what's different? So it definitely helps have a UI. I use the source the source tree. Yeah, that's the other one I've heard of that's really good. It's very powerful, huh? It's got like a bunch of features. Yeah, and I, I just click on stuff pretty much, <laughs> but I, I'm sure it has some great features. <laughs> yeah, source tree was a tool sums that up my speed up to move away from the command line as much as I was using it. That's the Atlassian one, right? Yes. Yep. So you use that more often than command line? No, I still don't use it more often than command line, but I'm using Git LOL less and, and uh, trying to diff things. It's a, just a better visual representation. I was at an NS Coder one night, and I was just harping about not wanting to use any visual tools, and uh, someone gave me a scenario with uh, Git Flow where I became convinced immediately. I said, oh, well, I probably should do this now because there's a lot of branches here. Yeah, the other thing that I found that's painful with Git is when you merge and you have merge conflicts. And so if it has a nice UI for handling that, I've seen a few of them that give you a little bit better visual representation than the awesome greater than, greater than, greater than, greater than, greater than that you get in there. But Do any of you guys have a visual diffing tool that you use other than just OpenDiff or whatever it's called? Yeah, that's all I'm using is OpenDiff, and it's less than stellar. I know a lot of people rave about Kaleidoscope, but I've never brought myself to pay I, so I'm so cheap, right? Because it's probably like 20 bucks or something. But Kaleidoscope is the one that I've always heard of as being the most awesomest for uh, visual diffing. I, I've tried Kaleidoscope. I tried it last year, and there were things that I don't remember exactly what that didn't quite work out. It wasn't really that much better than what I was doing, I found. So after the 30 days or whatever, I just I just let it go and haven't really used it. Mm. I think I had the same experience. I think, honestly, I don't. <laughs> this is make me sound really arrogant. I don't get merge conflicts that often. Um, <laughs> just stuff works, you know. No, um, I, I honestly actually I think it's because almost all the work I do is either me working on my own, uh, in which case merge conflicts would be the sign of a uh, troubled mind, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and when I'm working in teams, we're almost always doing just like straight trunk-based development with pretty aggressively checking in on a regular basis. So I haven't actually had to deal with merge conflict for a while. I think if you don't deal with merge conflicts, then a diffing tool is less necessary. Or if you do less branchy stuff, I guess a diffing tool is less necessary. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely support a commit often strategy. So the last person in, they have to merge it. 
So just come in as fast as you can. Yeah. If someone, <laughs> if someone says they've got a lot of stuff landing soon, you just have to get there first, right? You don't have to beat the bear. You just have to be faster than <laughs> right. someone else. Yeah. But it doesn't always work out that way. I mean, sometimes you have that big feature that you spend a couple of weeks on, and so you keep merging master back to your branch. Yeah. So that's why you should be practicing trunk-based development and not working on feature branches for more than a couple of days, in my very opinionated opinion. Yeah, ideally, yes, but it doesn't always work out that way. True. Does anyone use the Git tools that are built into Xcode? I do not. (laughs) The only part of that that I use, it has the little icons next to the files that tells you that it's different from what's in Git. Oh, that's nice. So I I know that it's changed. (laughs) That's about (laughs) it. The rest of it, I just go to the command line. I have seen a few people. In fact, I'm trying to remember where I saw them, but there are a bunch of command line alias things where you can do like tab completion and stuff and it'll do tab completion on like branch names and file names and things like that i'll see if i can find those but i've had them working on different projects with actually the same person so i'm pretty sure i can find them steal them from him wait you mean on the command line or in yeah on the command line so oh yeah it's just like git bash completion yeah isn't that like on by default i guess that's not on by default huh I think a long time ago I set that up and then I, it's just always worked. So I assumed everyone had that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's like the, the most useful thing in the world if you're doing Git command line stuff is to be able to just tab complete everything. Oh, yeah. it's like a smart auto complete for your Git stuff. Yeah. Yep. Oh, how, how do you have that set up? I think you can just, you just include it in your bash RC file. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's a, the thing that's annoying about it is that depending on which distribution of Git, which way you're using Git, you have to link in a different file. So if you're using Homebrew, the file is like git completion.bash in like slash user slash local slash something. If you're using the built-in one that comes with OSX, then it's a different URL or it's a different file path and you need to do a bunch of splunking around on your computer to find it. But once you've found it, you're golden. I've seen people actually just add it to their dot .files and just put it in their home directory. So they just copy yeah. it or symlink it, and then it just works. So. That would work. Do any of you guys do kind of source control on your on your dot .files, like on your bash RC and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I do. Yeah, me too. I do not. The reason so. that I do that is that I wind up doing work on, like, client remote machines and stuff. Uh, this is much more of a back-end development thing, I guess. But the thing is, is then I can use something like Chef or, you know, I can just check out the repo and then run my install script that I have in there. And then everything just works the way that I expect it to. So I tried something like that with like my Emacs files. It's like, oh, I'll put these in Git and then I can have them backed up. And if I go to a different computer, I can just download it and I get all my stuff there, which is pretty similar. But now every time I type Git, everything in my, my home directory shows up in the list of files changed. Or as files uh, to add. Yeah. I think yeah. the way that I do that is I, I have like a git repo in a subdirectory and then I have a little script in my dot files repo that installs symlinks when I'm on a new machine or if I'm like, like Chuck said, like if I'm on some EC2 instance or something, I can, it's like a two line command to like clone those dot files and then run like install or whatever I called it. And then it will just symlink things into the right place and then you don't have that problem. Ah, there we go. Yep. Yeah, if you look at mine, I have an install.sh. So my chef recipe for setting up my account actually goes and clones this and then goes and runs install.sh. So when I log in, it just runs. It's all set up. And that's what it does. It just sim links the dot files over and stuff. 
So the other tool that I've played with using, and I'm not sure if I like it or not, is a tool called Boxen, which is kind of taking all this stuff to the extreme where you use Puppet to automate the kind of the installation of all of your developer tools on your developer laptop. Like, so not on like your production servers or whatever, but on your, your kind of your local setup. And we've tried that at our client and I like it, but I don't totally trust it to use for my, my main kind of personal machine i'm fine with using it for pairing stations but it's fiddly enough when you when stuff changes stuff tends to break so not totally sold on it it's a very cool idea though yeah my thing with something like boxing for like development machines i think if i were setting up like a whole bunch of you know like you said pairing machines then it might make sense you know to use that or you know like i said before something like chef or puppet or something but i, I generally use chef for the servers and then for development machines, I mean, I just pull in my dot files to configure the command line stuff. And the rest of it, I more or less can just set up from like the App Store app on the Mac because it has most of the software that I use in there. So, so do you guys use an app to replace Spotlight, LaunchBar or Alfred or one of those? I just use Spotlight, you know, command space. It's right there. So that's how I get to most of my stuff. Yeah, me too. I used to use what was the the one that was by the guy that eventually got he went and worked for Google. It was oh Silverlight. I used to use Silverlight for a long time, and then at some point is he wait is Silverlight a Linux thing or a Mac thing? No, I can't it's a Mac thing. Remember. Okay, I used I that for a long time, and I liked it. And then no, it's not Silverlight. What is it? Quicksilver. Quicksilver. Silverlight is something totally different. Quicksilver was the one I used for a long time. And then at some point, I was on a machine that didn't have it installed, and I used Spotlight for a while, and then I was like, oh, wait, all the stuff I do with Quicksilver, I can just do with Spotlight. So I just started doing that instead. I haven't tried anything other than Spotlight. I use LaunchBar, and I really like it. But it seems like Spotlight is becoming more and more fully featured, so it's able to do more and more of the things that I use LaunchBar for. So at this point, it's just more habit and the fact that I've paid for it (laughs) than anything else. It's a sunk cost. Mm-hmm. I've worked with some people who've got like a really customized like Alfred setup or something like that and it does it definitely looks like they're very very productive with it it's like oh go to GitHub oh go to my GitHub account and they kind of like hit five keys on the keyboard and suddenly their browser has launched my GitHub account or something so they definitely I think if you put some care and attention into that tool then it seems like it could give you a bunch of productivity gains yeah I know that the change log for launch bar said that you can now write i don't remember what they call them but they're basically the little recipes for what you type in there to make it do stuff you can write those now in like four or five different languages so i'm pretty sure you can i know you can write them in ruby i'm pretty sure you can do them in javascript and a couple of other languages they added in the latest version so whatever your language of choice is you can you can build stuff out in them and so yeah you you can do all of that stuff but at wwdc when they showed off the new silverlight it looked a whole lot like what yeah you know a lot of these others do so i think they kind of caught on to hey you know people are using these third-party tools because they want these other features in it curious about what are people's productivity hacks like what are you using that kind of gives you a leg up on getting stuff done you guys have any tips i'm a big fan of the pomodoro technique i use it quite a bit and it's really helpful for me because it allows me to sort of time box things and i'm working on and stay focused i'm really distracted a lot of times which is why i have to switch to single monitors at times 
So it's helpful for me also to sort of get away from a problem because it's really easy for me to get tunnel vision and spend a lot of time trying to debug something. Now, I haven't found a great tool for that. In fact, I'm actually working on creating one myself because the tools that are out there are great for timing, but they don't really provide some of the additional features that I'm looking for. Are you looking to kind of keep logging, kind of keep track of what you have done for a Pomodoro? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. When you say you're working on a tool, is that a Mac app or an iOS app or... It's going to be, it'll start as an iOS app, but I definitely would like to make a Mac app for it as well. And, uh, with the tighter integration, I think it'll be beneficial to users. That way I can switch between tracking things on my iPhone or iPad when I'm out in a coffee shop to when I get back to my desk and just having a timer. I'm not a big fan of having the timers necessarily going off notifications in, inside of, inside of the Mac when I'm working again, because it's a distraction, but I have to find the right balance though, because at some level I do need the distraction to let me know to stop working, take the break and then return. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I've, tr- I've tried most of the Pomodoro apps out there and I don't really like any of them. I end up, I use focus poster, which is just a very simple flash app. that just keeps time and tells me when I can take a break, but damn, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what you're working on. Okay. I would uh, love to have his beta tester actually. <laughs> Yeah, I've done uh, Pomodoro technique as well. I found that 25 minutes is actually too short a time. The interruption throws me off before I'm ready for it. So I usually go 45 minutes or 55 minutes for my Pomodoro and then take a longer break. But again, I haven't found an app that really worked out nicely for me either. So I'd be curious to see what you come up with. So how many of those long Pomodoros can you put together in a string? I can do three or four. But like I said, you know, if it's a 55-minute or a 45-minute, it's a 10-minute break mm-hmm. instead of a 5-minute break, which is also about what I need to, you know, get up, walk around, find some food, use the bathroom, whatever I have to do. Yep. I think it's a very common critique that 25 is too short. And, like, you sit down and work for 25 minutes, you're in the middle of a problem, your timer goes off, you're supposed to take a break. But after two or three, it's like it's hard to maintain that focus because it's so easy to get on Twitter or check email and stuff like that. So over over a whole day, I think I, I stick with 25 minutes, but I, I see definitely where people are coming from, where you get through the first one, you're like, I just want to keep going. I just want to keep going. Yeah. And, yeah. I actually take an approach like almost like uh, some of the workout programs where you do varying like uh, circuit training and I vary the session. So it, it, I tailor, I try to tailor it to the type of work that I'm doing. So I'll do a longer session and when I know I need more dedicated time. But the, I do sprints as well, like 20 minute sprints where I'm trying to like really get something done, and especially when I need to sort of not goal plate something. And I have like to force myself to just like I set that limit so that I can get it done in that time constraint. Now, I'm usually not successful, but it does allow me to at least not spend a lot of time overthinking certain things when I'm working on something. One other tool that I've used, I've used it as a timer, though it's not designed to be used as a timer, is Focus at Will, focusatwill.com. And it's, it's kind of, I don't know what to call the music there, but basically it's just music with a certain tempo and they, they have a whole explanation of all of the neuroscience that goes into the music that they play and why and how it's supposed to help you focus. But it has a timer in it. And so it's kind of like a sleep timer. You tell it to turn off after 25 minutes. And so sometimes I'll do that. I'll set it to 25 or 45 minutes and then I'll, uh, I'll hit play and then I'll just work until the music stops. But the only way that I've really found that it works well is in the browser. They do have an iPhone app, but unless you have like a really solid connection to the internet. So if I go work at the cafe or something, it really doesn't work all that well. You know, the music's choppy and stuff there. But at home on my machine here, 
it seems to be fine. So I'll, I'll do that, and then I'll just get up and do whatever I need to do, and then I'll come back, and I'll hit play, and I'll do another session. It helps me cut out the distractions, and I'm not sure why that is, because I don't turn off Twitter or anything. That might be something that I need to think about. But I'm curious about the musical aspect of that, because I, I know several people who are pretty divided on, along the lines of not listening to things, podcasts or music, or whether they use them. And I tend to have music playing, particularly with the timers and the timer. I'm actually at times just using the timer inside of the clock app and have it interrupt the music. So it gives me that shock of being used to hearing some, some nice sounds. Yeah, I think it depends on who you are. And sometimes if it's not too mentally taxing, I'll turn on a podcast and listen to it while I work. I used to do that, but then I found that I just don't listen to the podcast. It's just totally there as as background noise. I think it might actually help me concentrate or help me do something with working, but it, it, I always end up frustrated because I feel like I didn't actually listen to the podcast. Yeah, I've, I've been kind of that as well sometimes. And I've had to shift certain podcasts that, that I'll listen to depending on the, the uh, person's voice. Like John Syracuse, it's not really conducive to, <laughs> to sort of focusing, but it's great for doing non-programming tasks. Yeah, listening to someone talk while I'm trying to code it wouldn't work for me at all. Actually, I rarely listen to music while I'm working. If I do, it's a lot of times it's just a white noise. If I need to drown out some external sound, I'll just put on a white noise generator, like from Spotify, or maybe classical, something like that, where it's just kind of going on in the background. It can kind of take a little bit of attention, but yeah, anything with words, I, I'm listening to the words and the music and getting distracted. I've heard a lot of people say that, that they can't listen to music with vocals. Even if they're like on a really tricky problem, they prefer, like even, even the lyrics in a song can distract you from focusing on the problem. Yeah, I get that a lot. But if it's like brainless work, then it doesn't matter. But if you have to, if you have to think through a problem, then I need the focus. You should just try and find more brainless work and then. <laughs> I'm trying. That's what I'm doing, you know? Yeah. I, I, for me, it just depends on how I'm feeling and, you know, what kind of workflow I'm in. So sometimes a podcast is perfect and sometimes, you know, I need something more like focus at will. I also find that it's harder for me to focus at the beginning of the week. But once I get into the routine of, you know, okay, I've put in a few hours on client work or on my own projects, you know, then it's easier for me to get into the roof. And so uh, focus at will is usually my tool toward the beginning of the week. And I'm listening to podcasts toward the end of the week because it's not as hard for me to get into the rhythm. Yeah, that's a good point about uh, finding time for additional projects because when I'm doing work for my job, I find that I'm sometimes distracted by a side project. So if I can get a couple hours in earlier in the week just to sort of keep that project moving forward, it's a lot easier for me to to, to switch back because I feel like I've, I've accomplished something and I don't worry about what's sitting back there in the queue waiting to get done. Another benefit of the Pomodoro, it helps you focus and time box things. So if you want to work on something for an hour or two, you can do that. I'm kind of curious, where do you guys work? Do you work at home? Do you work in an office? Are there tricks to being more productive in the office or at home? I'm a big uh, proponent of movement. I have to, I'm sort of nomadic just by nature. And so I, I like to be in different places, like whether it's a city or a different location. So I spend most of the morning working here in my home office. And usually by mid, I go to a Starbucks or something, uh, a place where I can, you know, work for an hour or two. And then I'll relocate there. I may go to another place. Sometimes I'll spend an afternoon at, at a sports bar, you know, just sort of non mentally taxing work and then back at the home office. So it gives me a bit of variety. It allows me to get away, from, get up from my desk too. I started doing a, uh, carrying those pedometer apps on my 5S 
and I realized I was not moving. So I definitely had to start taking action to get more mobile and, and take more steps during the day. That makes sense. Uh, what do you look for in a place that you get out to go work at? Usually I just need a large table and I wear headphones to drown out any ambient noise. So I'm not really worried about conversations. Also, sometimes I've been in, I've worked in a few co-working spots where other companies' conversations are really distracting. Um, the other thing is typically like a variety of types of, of seating because I like to also alternate between sitting and standing during the day. I have a standing desk here at home and I also have a sitting desk and I alternate between those two as well. Again, I just want to, I find that the more that my body physically has something to engage it, as far as change, the better I am at focusing and getting things done. What kind of a standing desk do you have? Um, my old standing desk is a, um, a just a sewing table that I got from my mother and some some milk crates uh, with two by fours that I've uh, created sort of variable heights to set the monitors and my laptop on. I'm actually building one. Um, in fact, my pick this one of my picks this, this week is a, a plan for a standing desk from uh, parts I got from IKEA. Uh, and it looks great. It's a great looking desk. So it's one of those things that will make your home office look really, really snazzy. Alondo, you got to send pics of the homemade one. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Cool. I want to see the milk crates. <laughs> yeah. No, don't, you don't want to see the milk crate version. They had a bunch of, a bunch of folks at, at my office. They were built standing desks by just putting like a shoe rack on top <laughs> of the tables. So they had this crappy kind of like particle board shoe rack. With like a twenty-seven inch iMac in the middle, like making it sag. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Yeah. So then, uh, of course, the solution to that was to take a can of Coke and put that underneath to kind of act as support. But it's quite—it's a little bit too short. So then you had to take one of the other kind of like standard issue kind of snacks that were in the office. I can't remember what it was, and you put that underneath the can of Coke, and then that holds up the twenty-seven inch iMac. It's uh, it's a perfect solution. I'm surprised that there isn't a blog post about it that I could link to. I have a standing desk here, and that's another part of the draw for me of using the the laptop for everything is because I have a Mac Mini over on the other desk, and so I again, you know, if I move over, I have to pull and update and you know do whatever I have to do to make it all you know work over there. If I switch desks, and so it'd be nice if I could just grab the laptop and just go stand over there instead of sitting over here because I could just. But- continue to work i think marco armand might have everyone beat with the coca-cola can standing desk there will be a link in the show notes yeah i gotta gotta see this as someone who pair programs most of the time and someone who doesn't like standing desks i have to admit i think that standing desks are the bane of civilization (laughs) oh wow (laughs) Nah, i mean i'm I'm exaggerating but yeah I, i don't know i just can't get into the whole standing all the time thing i get way too antsy like i start kind of wanting to walk around and yeah i just have a have a hard time with it so if i'm pairing with someone who does like standing desks then it ends up with me just being kind of antsy and wandering around a lot it definitely takes some getting used to we've actually had a few people at the office who have gotten the treadmill desk and i tried to hook up my laptop to a uh, exercise bike and for a week or so to try to ride but i realized that riding a exercise bike and coding are just not uh simpatico it just doesn't really work well I think the treadmill desks work a little bit better just because or at least your upper body isn't moving a lot because you don't turn it up very fast. But yeah, I, I've been, tra- I've been tempted to try that. And one of the Ruby depths I work with swears by, he, he does it every day. He's logged tons, you know, thousands of miles. And, uh, but the, the bike you're swaying so much, it's just not, it's just not productive. Yeah. I tried a rock climbing desk. It didn't work. At all. <laughs> <laughs> not sure what I was thinking. Very nice. 
Yeah. I so, want the opposite of a standing desk. I want like a lie down on my back and have the monitor just kind of levitating in front of my face desk. Oh, there you go. Isn't that what Chuck has? You know, oh, Chuck, yeah. Chuck's kind of laid back. If you right. put him on video, he's right. actually laying back, you know. So I have a, I have a Herman Miller Aeron chair. I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. Uh, warning your pocketbook won't thank you for buying it, but it is a very, very nice chair. I would have either my legs going numb or back issues sitting in the chairs that I had before. And uh, this one I've had for, what, a year and a half, two years, and I haven't had any issues uh, sitting in it. And it's completely ergonomic. It totally adjusts to everything. But, yeah, I I have it set up so that it lays back. I'm not sure, maybe a, a 20 or 30 degree angle, you know, leaning back. And, you know, then I've positioned my monitors up so that they're kind of at eye level so that I don't have to hold my head up in a weird way to see them or to look at them and, and have it feel natural. And that's where those Ergotron arms come in. Oh, you really have implemented my idea. And, well, not quite. I'm not I'm not laying down, but I am uh, leaning back quite a ways. But it's really nice. It's really convenient. And so if I hooked up my laptop to this, you know, I just plug it in, leave the monitors where they are. But yeah, and I also have the headrest, and so it just props my head up at the proper angle, and then I don't, I don't have like weird neck pain or anything. And it, it's important to me that way as well because I tend to get tension headaches, and my tension headaches originate with my, you know, it'll start at the the base of my skull and work its way up the back of my head, and uh, it all ties in with my neck muscles. And I also have a condition in my jaw called TMJ. And that also feeds back into that. So if I'm clenching my teeth or anything like that, I tend to get just awful headaches. And so the fact that I can, you know, position my head and kind of relax tends to alleviate that to some degree so that I don't, I don't get the headaches as often. That's nice. I'm definitely due for an upgraded chair. It'd be a good investment. Yeah. Well, they come with a 20 year warranty or something on the uh, Aerons. It might be a 12 year warranty, but for an office chair, that's pretty awesome. So. Mm-hmm. And and mine, I, I don't know how big anyone is. If you're taller, you want to get the large large one. If you're bigger around, you probably want to get the large one. Mine's the medium-sized one, and it fits me just fine. Yeah, so I'll put links to that and the, the headrest as well. So, Chuck, you and I work out of kind of home offices or things like that. I think Pete and Alondo, they, like, they're out and about. Like, what, are the, what are some tips for getting like the right work environment when you're kind of out and about, either like a client site Orlando, your your employer. If you go out there, you know, do you have a tip tips for getting your setup reasonable? I've done so many different setups. Like I, I love co work spaces, but you have to be really careful with the space. So I would definitely say, if you can plan ahead, you really want to have franchises that you prefer. Like for instance, if you're really comfortable working out of Starbucks or Panera Bread, is a place that I find a lot when I'm on the road. That it's a great place for me to work. Um, co-work spaces are so varied that some of them have like privacy areas and some don't. So you may want to check them out online. I tend to look at a few and look at the websites, check out the spaces to determine if it's going to work for me. If I know I'm going to be in a particular city, I'm rarely working in that mode when I'm at the uh, company location in Boulder. We're typically just having meetings. So we're in cabins and things like that. So it's typically not an issue. It's just a matter of like there's desk in the room or we're basically around each other for a long time. But I would definitely say if you find places, franchises that you like, particularly, uh, I I don't want to like over publicize Starbucks, but you know, you get the free Wi-Fi. But if you have a MyFi, of course, that doesn't matter. Um, I've tried McDonald's and even Dunkin' Donut as well. 
as a, a few other places. But again, it's the seating more than anything else that you have to get a place that's comfortable. It's not too crowded. And some of that's just experience. You have to find locations that you, you'd like. Um, I haven't found any resources where people rate, you know, these places for working at all. But that would be a great idea if someone did. That way you could sort of do a little bit of reconnaissance before you were in a particular city to find the best places to get work done. Yeah, that would it, be nice. There was one of those in San Francisco for a while, the, the San Francisco Ruby Users Group, because they tend to be very itinerant. Uh, <laughs> there was someone who started one of those, and actually a bunch of people kind of got really mad about it because it's kind of like secret surf spots. Like if you find a good co-working spot or a good like cafe, you actually don't really want half of San Francisco <laughs> showing up with their freaking laptops. <laughs> That's funny. So yeah, there was like this whole like little tribal war of like, like, dude, you can't tell anyone about that place on sixth. It's like, it's, it's been my secret for four years. I'm so productive there. And now there's all these hipsters with Mac. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want to be the only one there. I liked it before it was cool though. You know? Yeah, exactly. I, I want to pull up the, um, the ladder as I climb into the treehouse. Yeah. One other thing that I found with co-working areas is that, uh, so I, I tend to go to Paradise Bakery, which is actually owned by Panera Bread out here in Utah. And, you know, I just go sit in a booth. They're pretty comfortable and I can pull the, the blinds down and stuff. You know, Alondo already talked about putting your headphones in and things like that. At the co-working spaces, I found that some of them are better than others as far as being interrupted, which is a problem that I found when I worked in an office. You know, people come up, hey, I got a question, you know, or hey, what about this? And uh, working from home, you don't get that as much. So most of the co-working spaces that I have worked in that I liked, uh, they had the headphone rule. And so if you have your headphones in, it means don't bug me. And if you don't have your headphones in, you know, or you have some other indicator on or around your desk that says, you know, hey, go ahead and ask me a question, then people can come up and interrupt you. And that way you can signal to people, hey, look, I'm trying to, you know, heads down, get some work done. They should have those uh, little uh, the th- things they put on the table at the Brazilian steakhouse. Yeah. yeah. And you can just have like a green light, yellow, red. Yeah. Ask me questions. And the other one is go away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, but, I'm your yeah. enemy, Chuck. I spend most of my time going to my clients and telling them to take their headphones off. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, when I worked in an office, that was like the only way to get things done. I put my headphones on and I made sure I got the, you know, the big headphones that go over my ears so that it was very clear that I was listening to something. And then, yeah, it was like, unless it's an emergency, you know, people would get dirty looks or I'd act like I was really unhappy about being bothered because it would happen every, t- every 10 minutes. Yeah, you have to set the tone. You definitely have to make sure that people know that boundaries are there. Yeah, you need you need the balance. You need collaboration because you need to talk with your team members so you're not spending all your time focusing on writing the wrong thing. Yeah. Right. But you, you can't get any work done in 10-minute sprints, any real thinking done. So yeah. you have to kind of get your collaboration time, then go off somewhere in your little bear cave. That's what we tend to do now. Like uh, I've, worked, I've worked with another iOS developer, and we just tend to have calls during, you know, we'll ping someone. So we use a, a tool called Slack for our chat, and we'll just ping each other and say, you know, if you've got a quick sec to do a stand-up, I mean, a, a hangout or something, and we can just talk through an issue. Um, in fact, we just, we've done t- two this morning. They usually don't last long, five to ten minutes, talk through an issue, separate, and just go back to doing what we're doing. Yeah, I've been using Slack for the past week or so with a, with a new client, and it's working pretty well. I mean, you can kind of group up to whatever topic you want to discuss. So if, if we're going to feature with one other person or two other people, you can have your little private channel where you can put up the bad signal, ask for help, or get questions and guidance. 
Mike. Well, let me ask you. Look, I'm sorry. Let me ask you a question though, because uh, we've gone through several of these tools, and and have you tried other ones before you settled on Slack? Seems like every six months we're using a different one. Yeah, well, I mean, most of my work is just Skype. You know, open that, and that works fairly well, at least to the point where I wouldn't go with it at full service unless it was a big enough company where that was kind of a constant problem. But I've been pretty happy with Skype. My client is currently using Flowdoc, and you know, you can set up different channels and things like that. I also worked for a company that just used IRC. Okay. You know, they they all have their pros and cons. It really just depends on what you need. Yeah. The hip hip chats they have one that I've I know people are are fans of. But I think Slack kind of ate a bunch of hip chats lunch, as it were. Yeah, we switched from Hall. We were using Hall up until about uh two months ago. I think the thing that made Slack kind of blow up so impressively, like in terms of adoption, is just it's super low friction to get started with, right? Like someone adds you and then you, uh, or someone, someone sends you some link and then two minutes later you're in a bunch of rooms and communicating with people. Like I think it's very impressively low friction. And then they wait till you're hooked and then they're like, surprise. <laughs> so speaking of tools, what, what do you guys use for like uh, task management or uh, project management? Whew, okay, I use multiple. Uh, we uh, we use Scrumdo uh, for work, but I also use a Pivotal Tracker as well. As I, I'm a big fan of it, I've used Rally, but uh, for on several client projects. But it's just a bit heavy. I mean, it, there's some great features in there, but it's so much to sort of to know how to use and to take full advantage of. I found Pivotal Tracker and even Trello for smaller projects with fewer collaborators works really well. I feel like obliged to plug my company's product. <laughs> so Forworks has a thing called Mingle, which is somewhere in between maybe Jira and Trello. It's actually been around for a very long time. And it's like the, it's the thing we built because the things, all the things that were out there weren't quite what we wanted. So we built our own. So I actually really like it. Um, and it's quite easy to get started with it's ridiculously customizable maybe a little bit too customizable you could spend your entire day just fiddling around with it but um it's good if you're if you're a fan of just kind of extreme programming or scrum or that kind of agile kanban lean type stuff then it, it works out pretty well yeah i work with so many different clients that i don't, I don't really settle on one i, I use yeah, them all the for for the month i'm working with this client a lot of my clients are small companies that don't really have this, you know, a full development team where they have these tools. So I end up just doing things by hand, you know, yeah, keep, track, keep track of Evernote. And- the one that shows up the most for me is Jira, actually. from I'm, I'm the same thing where, like, I go to a bunch of different clients and it's different things at different clients. The, the most common one that I see is Jira. Uh, well, Jira. actually, the most, the most common one I see is a wall with some sticky notes on. Um, <laughs> we used to do that. That is not a bad way to go, I have to say. It's a, I mean, it's it's great. It, it's great as long as you if you're not distributed. If you don't have remote yeah. people, then I would do that every time. I would not use software to solve that problem. It's good if you have a you know a, a local team, but if you have like all one room, you have scrums all day, and you can't actually yeah. get into the scrum room to look at your notes. Like, what did we what did we decide we wanted to do? I don't know. We can't go in there for another two hours. Oh we'll yeah, make, you've got we'll to make something up. Yeah, we we just got moved from one floor to another floor, and they wanted us to put like all of all of our walls like in like a shared space. Like, oh, we'll just put them all in the same place. It's like, well, the whole point of them is they're supposed to be right next to the team. So, we, if we have to walk somewhere to go and see them, and someone else is there, then it's defeating the purpose. Yeah, 
Okay, so you add the the office, and you can you know reserve time to go see the office to go <laughs> scrum board. You know, <laughs> I work perfect yeah, sense. I worked yeah, for a company. They uh, they put all of our stuff into a Gantt chart and then printed it off, and then they put it all the way down like a fifty foot wall, and it really went down the whole wall. <laughs> this is wow. this is how we're gonna get all this done. <laughs> we're just like, okay, guys. That's yeah. that's how you make it happen. Once you've printed it, that's mm-hmm. reality, right? That's right. It's on paper. Yeah. I have to say, I've used Pivotal Tracker and liked it. I used Redmine for a while, and I liked the fact that I could customize it some, because uh, it's written in Ruby on Rails. But I've kind of settled on Trello. Uh, somebody mentioned Trello. And uh, for my business to-dos, I've actually been using Redbooth, uh, which used to be Teambox. It's just kind of a nice little to-do list uh, tech support tool. So. Yeah, I will say that there's a great visceral feeling, though, when you have that physical board, when you move something over that you just don't get from dragging a, a, a card. Yeah, yeah, for sure. James, I'm a little curious. Do you use a CMS for your business to keep track of leads and stuff? Or I a don't. CRM? Sorry. Yeah, like customer relationship. Yeah. I don't really. I was thinking about setting like a wall in my office with like kind of leads and things like that. I don't have a formal process for that, but I'll keep things in Evernote and I've just got a list of things I want to accomplish this week, you know, get out estimates or whatever I want to do. And I just keep track of stuff in Evernote. I've got my little kind of homebrewed system. Yeah. But yeah, I don't really have enough stuff going on where I lose track of people that want to give me money. So I haven't, that hasn't been a problem yet. So Yeah, I, I use a blend of Office Autopilot, which is a CRM and Redbooth to do that stuff. So Office Autopilot is also not a cheap solution. So Yeah, there's definitely lots of very cool SaaS apps that you can do to help kind of modify those things. Lead generation, keeping track of your contacts. I just haven't really bit the bullet on any of them. Well, I'm curious about that, Shane, because I'm a big fan of Evernote, but I never thought about sort of using it beyond just the ubiquitous note-taking. So I have all these notebooks, and I just take lots of notes, and I capture lots of things. And that's great, so I can go back and search tags and whatnot. But it sounds like you've got a little more extensive sort of workflow with Git. Yeah, a little bit. It's it's not really extensive, but if I have takeaways from a meeting, I have those in a certain place. And so when I hop on a call with a client, I go to that, you know, that notebook with the takeaways that we had from the previous meeting, just to keep track of it. You know, it's not like I have twenty clients at once, so it's just mainly just getting my head in the right space. Evernote also has some tools for that. There's Evernote Hello, which uh, you can use to get people's information and pull all that stuff together. So. To look at that. I'm, I'm definitely not using uh, Evernote what, to its fullest potential. What is Hello again? I've seen it used as kind of a contact form, so people can fill in their information and it puts it into a note for you in Evernote. But then it also does some work to tie different notes to that person's record and stuff like that. I'm not completely familiar with all of the features, but I did try it out. Very nice. So what about design? Do you guys use particular tools to get design done for your apps? I have to say that's a definite place where I'm lacking in both experience and a toolkit. I'd love to hear what other people are doing there. I have someone else do that stuff for me. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say that. That's my solution. Plus one. Okay. I think we're all agreed. I am curious, though. Do you guys tend to do like, you know, you do the layout in uh, Interface Builder or something like that, and then you hand that off to somebody so that they can pretty it up, and then and then you just go back in and put the design in place? Or... Do you have somebody design it up front and then you go in and build it? 
I think someone who designs interfaces ha- would be justifiably a bit offended at, at like their job being prettying it up, right? Like their job is to is to build a usable, right. uh, usable interface. So I think that normally means they they want to talk through what's the task the user is trying to you know accomplish, and then build an interface that helps them accomplish that task and is also delightful and all of those other kind of hand wavy designer words. So normally, I I think it works out best when you have someone. Uh, an, an experienced designer or a usability designer or an information architect or whatever, all these other kind of two-letter uh, acronyms, uh, who goes through and, and builds the experience and then hopefully paired up with with a developer so the developer can say, hey, that's going to be really hard to do. Can we do it this way instead? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's where I've seen that fall down is when someone throws like a huge stack of PDFs or Photoshop documents over the wall to you and says like, hey, look, I made this delightful experience and it's like, oh, wow, this is going to be really hard to build just because of some simple, you know, there's a few simple tweaks you could make and it would be way easier to build, but because there wasn't any communication between the two people, they ended up getting a bunch more work for no for no extra value. Right. Yeah, it definitely so makes sense to go and have that be at least part of a collaborative process. You know, have yeah. your UX person, designer, say, hey, I'm thinking about this, and you can get back to them like, well, this is cool, but, you know, for a tenth of the time, we could do something like this, and that may be enough. And generally it is enough where they're okay with it. So that's the time when, when you see the interface designer guy approaching you, you take off your headphones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Zing! You just, my, you just made my work so, my day so much easier. Right. So unfortunately, I don't have the luxury of use, working with a full-time UX person very often. A lot of times I'm kind of going through that stuff. So it, but it does help to have someone with a good design sense go through and i know prettying up is not the best word for it but you know making it having it look nice you know having it look professional presentable something that people would want to use versus you know my my brute force interface builder skills yeah and that that's kind of what i meant where you know a lot of times i'll get in and i'll just make something functional in other words all the buttons are on the screen (laughs) you know you can you can do the stuff the app's supposed to do and then somebody will come in and actually make it so that somebody will want to use it be that that they, you know, they rearrange things, they, you know, they add a few transitions or screens or whatever to your overall design and stuff like that. Pick some colors, you know, good background, you know, make it pleasant to look at and nice to use. But I've also seen that the other way where, you know, you effectively, yeah, you get you get a design where it's here's the Photoshop or here's the whatever file and this is what it's supposed to look like. And when I click here, this is what it's supposed to do. And you're not click, but tap or whatever. And then it, it works out that way too. When you're working with clients, do you typically have a designer that you work with uh, on a frequent basis or is it something that the client provides? It depends. Sometimes they have the design in-house. Sometimes they have a designer they've already worked with and sometimes they don't want to think about it. And so it's, hey, who do you know? Or do you have somebody on your staff that can do it? Yeah, it's a little tricky bringing a designer along with you because you have no idea what the client likes or what they're going to want out of the app. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's such a personal thing, you know, to kind of design sense. Yeah, I've, been, I've been wanting to sort of learn more about doing it because I have a few apps of my own and, and I'm really tired of shipping programmer art. So it's one of those things where I definitely either need to establish a relationship with the designer that I can work with or just get better. But there's there's a time constraint in the latter. Yeah, one thing that I've also done, I have a friend of mine that uh, he's done a few logos for me. And usually what he winds up doing is he'll send me the logo along with the color scheme that goes with the logo and the fonts that he used, you know, if there's text in the in there. 
And that's usually enough for it to look okay with just what I'm able to do. And then from there, you know, I, I have a few designer friends that will just give me pointers. And so I can sit down and I can say, hey, this is what I've done. Do you have any suggestions about how I can make this look a little bit better? And a lot so, yeah. of times I get, you know, I get, I get free advice, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's on the level of something that I can, I can fix on my own. It's a really good idea. I like the idea of getting the color scheme and the fonts. It's really helpful. Cause that's one of the challenges I have is trying to determine a lot of times sort of what would go best depending mm-hmm. on the type of app. So if you haven't designed the, the icon, then you can get all the other information from them for that. Okay. I've always found that design a very much like a, a kind of a, a dark art. Like I understand that there's loads of theory and smart stuff behind it, but I never really, I kind of felt like I was on the other side of the wall. Just recently, I have a code school membership and I did the code school course on fundamentals of design. And that was actually really helpful for me. I don't think I'm going to be designing anything well anytime soon, but it does mean that I can kind of understand. I have a little bit more empathy for designers now and I kind of understand a little bit is some of the theory of, of how they work, like color theory and why fonts are important, like why there's a difference between different types of fonts and grid systems and all that kind of stuff. So it's worth it if you've got a if you've got a code school membership, it's worth it's worth watching. Some of it felt a little bit silly to me, honestly. Like the exercises that you do as part of the course felt a little bit silly, but I think that's just because I'm not a designer and I just don't have that mentality. I found talking to designers and working through some of the books and things that I've read that design is a lot more scientific than I thought it was. I thought people just looked at things and knew how to make it pretty, but there's a lot more to it than that. And I think that a lot of it just comes down to practice as well, you know, kind of like programming where, you know, you kind of get an eye for, you know, this is how the code should look. This is how this problem should be solved. These are some patterns I'm going to use, or these are some uh, techniques that I've I've developed that work well under these circumstances. And I think designers, you know, are kind of the same way. I mean, to a certain degree, I think there's some fundamental skill involved that, you know, you either have or don't. But I think any programmer can pick up at least the basics. They may not make great design, but I think they can learn how to make good design and learn at least what the concepts are behind it. Which goes completely out the window as soon as you put the app in front of users. Unfortunately, (laughs) I don't envy a designer's job at all. UX. Well, but that's, that's the other thing, right? And if you get into things like lean startup and stuff like that, I mean, that's what they encourage you to do. Put it in front of your users and see what they do with it. And that's really where I think you're going to get the most out of it anyway. You know, having a great design will give you a leg up. You know, you won't have to learn those lessons per se, but yeah, you definitely won't know for sure until you see somebody using your app. All right, well, we've been talking for a while. Should we get to the picks? Sure. Alondo, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Okay, so uh, as we were talking about workflows and, and setups and things like that, um, one of the picks that I have is for the desk that I'm building. I'm using parts from Ikea. I actually drove across the state because the closest one is four hours away. And picked the parts, so I'll be assembling this particular uh, standing desk pretty soon. It's a much better organ- organized standing desk than the one that I built with milk crates and whatnot. So uh, that's the first pick that I have. Uh, the second is a really good article. It provides a nice overview for the iOS privacy updates from uh, Louis Abrea's uh, blog. It just talks about the different APIs and, and the privacy updates there and things to think about. He's coming from a designer standpoint. But it's still really informative and a, and a, and a great uh, post. And then finally, um, I have a 
drink. I'm a big ginger ale fan. I love beer, but I also love ginger ale. And uh, being from Atlanta, there's a great local company uh, called Red Rocks, and they have this just incredibly de- delicious ginger ale. But I will warn you, it is strong. So if you are used to drinking like Canada Dry or something like that, this is really real ginger ale. So be prepared. Um, I like it real spicy. Yeah, it's got a little kick to it. Um, but you can get it shipped. They will ship it to you, and uh, it is absolutely delicious. So those are my picks. Awesome. Jane, what are your picks? So I'm going to have one pick. We talked about tools that we use. I, I wasn't thinking about one because I use it so much I don't even think about it. It's Reportative, which is a plugin for your for Gmail. And so if you get an email in your inbox, you click on it, and on the side panel, you get the user's kind of LinkedIn information, Twitter, Facebook. So if someone you're interacting with someone that you don't really know, you can see, oh, they're on Twitter, so you can check that out. And it's just a way to kind of organize your email and find out more about the people you're actually emailing with. So I've, I've been using it quite a bit. It, it's nice. That's my pick, Reportative. Very nice. Pete, what are your picks? I've got a ton of little tools, so I'm just going to read them all and provide links. Command line tools. ACK is a better version of grep. Hub adds some extra GitHub-specific features to Git, so you can say, like, hub, clone a specific GitHub repo. Tree lets you see the tree structure of your directories. Tmux is awesome. Uh, XC tool, I think I picked before, but it's like a better version of the Xcode build command line tools. Uh, S3 command is a really nice way to push stuff to S3, which I use a lot because I do like a lot of static site hosting on S3. And clock.pl, C-L-O-C.pl is a Perl utility that will count the number of lines of code in every language I know of pretty much. Uh, so those are my command line tools. And then one not command line tool is MindNode Pro. So I'm a big fan of mind mapping when I'm thinking of things, when I'm like coming up with conference talks or blog posts or ideas for things. And MindNode is a nice way to do kind of mind mapping with a computer rather than with a pen and paper. I think I'll stop there. I could keep going. I've got a long list here, but I'm going to stop. Very nice. Well, I've already been talking a little bit about my pick this week. I've been putting everything into uh, Redbooth. And so I'm going to pick that. They also have a plugin for um, Gmail. It's a Chrome plugin. It's not a like a direct plugin. Um, I found that a lot of the tools that I use these days for Gmail are Chrome plugins as opposed to actual plugins for uh, Gmail itself. Another one that I use is Yesware, um, which is it integrates with your uh, CRM, and it's pretty handy as well. And then we talked about Git. Uh, management tools and most of the development I do is actually in Emacs because most of the development I'm doing is Ruby and not iOS though I am doing iOS stuff and so in Emacs I'm using Magit mode uh, that's M-A-G-I-T mode I'll put a link in the show notes as well but uh, anyway I really really like it so I wind up doing all of my Git management stuff you know kind of streamlined into my development process anyway those are my picks and I guess that's it. So uh, next week, we're going to be talking about Viper with Conrad Stoll and Jeff Gilbert. And yeah, other than that, thanks for listening. We'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.